we are going to just dive right into this. Uh, we have been, over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring this topic of what it's like to live led, living led. Uh, in other words, what it's like to really follow Jesus and to know that you're not just kind of going by the impulse of your whim or by convenience or by the things that you think are important, but really being led by God. And ultimately, that's, that's the call of discipleship. When Jesus says to those disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, he says those two words, follow me, all right? Have you ever played follow the leader? Yeah? Yeah, Jaden, you played follow the leader? Awesome. How many leaders are there usually when you play follow the leader? One, right? And sometimes uh, in our lives, we, we have multiple leaders in our lives. We, we follow this, we follow that, we follow that news reporter, we follow this sports team. But really, ultimately, we want to live led by Jesus Christ alone. Um, and so that's what we've been exploring, what that life actually looks like. Because sometimes we, we hear, okay, I need to be a disciple, but we're not quite sure what that looks like, what that sounds like feels like. And so um, that's what we've been exploring. That's what we're going to continue to explore throughout the summer. So take your Bible with me. We're going to Matthew chapter 5 today is where we'll focus. But for now, I want us to look at uh, something in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 5, actually, yeah, we'll kind of jump back and forth. Matthew is the first gospel of the New Testament. Um, If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I invite you to look at these these, uh, powerful words with me. Um, And if you notice, or you may need to share with someone next to you, but Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We saw this call to discipleship in Matthew chapter 4. Like I said, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we've been wondering, what does that look like? We've kind of looked at the bookends of that passage. The beginning of chapter 4 is what Jesus did in the wilderness. The other bookend of that is Matthew 5 through 7, what Jesus taught on the mountainside. And so the last two weeks, we've been looking at what Jesus did in the wilderness. So he went into the wilderness. He uh, was immersed in God's word in the wilderness. And hopefully you've been able to take some practical uh, take-home challenges from that. And so now today, we're actually looking at a different dynamic. It's not necessarily a discipline, but it's more of an attitude. It's not necessarily a practice but more of an attitude that even makes discipleship possible, that even makes it uh, even that you can take the first steps. And so we're calling it the blessing of having nothing. The blessing of having nothing. Let's, let's say a word of prayer. Father, as we dig into the word today, we're asking that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our ears, so to speak, and that we would truly hear and understand what you are trying to communicate to us. We know that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we're praying for the Holy Spirit. God, we don't just want to look at this with human wisdom or human eyes. We want to see this from your perspective. So please teach us. Please instruct us. Please lead us. As it says in Romans 8.14, those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are children of God. Lord, that's the experience we want. So please lead us in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. You guys know who this is? Yeah. Uh, I, I was a big fan of this guy when I was growing up, actually. I read a book called um, Gifted Hands. 
I don't know if you've, anyways, it's, it's kind of his biography and stuff. And so I think I read that when I was in fifth grade. It was one of my book reports or whatever. And I just became a fan. Wow, this guy, he really accomplished a lot. And he, he lived in such a way that his heart was consecrated to God. And so the things that he accomplished weren't really about him. They're about God. Um, but a couple of years ago, I think it was 2013, this was before his pre- presidential campaign, <laughs> or at least his attempt at that. Anyways, um, he, he spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, and he was talking about kind of the, the discrepancies between um, the values of this country and really the values that we ought to have, speaking specifically about education and how education has kind of been misplaced in this country. And he was quoted as saying this, we went to these schools and we'd see all these trophies, state basketball, state wrestling, the quarterback was the big man on campus. What about the intellectual superstar? You kind of see what he's trying to say. What about the intellectual superstar? What did they get? A National Honor Society pin? A pat on the head? They're their little nerd? Nobody cared about them. And is it any wonder that sometimes the smart kids try to hide? The point that he's making that it's possible to misjudge the value of things that really matter. And sometimes in the social realm, you know, we we judge the things that we can see, we judge the things that we can applaud, but sometimes the things that we don't see are the things that go under the radar, so to speak. And, And in the same way that that happens in our, you know, in our relationships and in the popular society, I wonder if that happens in the spiritual realm. You think about Jesus' audience. We're going to go to this passage here shortly, the Sermon on the Mount, it's it's normally called. But Jesus, uh, in the first century AD, his audience, they, they had a value for spiritual things, yet in the value for spiritual things, they seemed to place a great priority on the visible dynamics. They, they almost seemed to incorporate the worldly um, honor and prestige of power as, as marks of God's favor. Do you understand what I mean? Like, if you had all this stuff, and if you were in a great position of importance, then God must really love you. But if you didn't have all this stuff, and if you didn't have these positions of of importance, wow, then maybe God has his back turned towards you. And I wonder if we fall into the same trap. There is a quote here uh, from the classic book, The Desire of Ages, describing the people that Jesus was speaking to. So just get a feel for Jesus' audience, and see if you resonate. It says, The people had come to think, that happiness consisted in the possession of the things of which world? This world. That fame and the honor of men were much to be coveted. And I wonder if we kind of slip into that where we look for when it comes to understanding what, what it makes a disciple, the trademarks of a disciple, so to speak. I wonder if we end up looking for the more glamorous indicators, the more uh, popular things, and yet we misjudge the things that really matter to God. And so, you got your Bible open. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. And here in this Sermon on the Mount, and we're just going to explore Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for the next two and a half months, all right? So, so get used to it. Buckle your safety belts. We're going to go in. And here, from the very beginning, Jesus is going to set us straight as to what really matters to God. <clears throat> and so the context of this, you know, Jesus is just starting his earthly ministry. He has just been baptized, right, in Matthew chapter 3. He walked into the wilderness and God led him for 40 days, 40 nights there in the wilderness as he was preparing for his mission. Actually, if you glance back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you get this idea that Jesus had already begun to preach even before this major sermon on the mount. And in 4.17, there's a very simple line that Jesus continued to preach. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for what is at hand? 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Jesus' audience, first century AD, the Jewish people, they were under the oppression of another kingdom, right? Which kingdom was it? You guys remember historians? Yeah, the Roman Empire at the time. So they were under foreign rule. So when they hear a a charismatic preacher say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, do you think this is positive news for them? Yeah, this is, this is a big deal. This is, okay, the kingdom of Rome is over. Kingdom of heaven, here we come, you know? And they're, they're just thinking, they have all these kinds of ideas. And you get this sense that there's so much anticipation, swelling. And uh, here at the end of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 24, if you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right? Then his fame, I'm reading from the New King James, it says, Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You get this feeling that things are building up, right? There's this swell of momentum And uh, you have this idea that as Jesus is preaching about the kingdom and he's revealing through his acts that, wow, heaven really has come down. These miracles, all these kinds of things. The fame of Jesus is spreading across the Palestinian populace. It's like wildfire. It's easy to imagine crowds that are gathering, they're following, their eyes are glazed over with visions of this heavenly kingdom, right? And they're not just thinking about a heavenly kingdom way beyond the blue. They're thinking, okay, God is now going to make us rightfully, uh, you know, over our oppressors. Now we'll have bragging rights over the foreign rules, so to speak. They're, they're thinking about social exaltation. They're thinking about being better than the rest of the nations. But when Jesus launches in Matthew chapter 5, he begins this almost like an inaugural speech. It has this feeling of an inaugural uh, speech. He's establishing something new. And in verse 3, the very first things that come out He starts declaring these blessings, right? He says, blessed are, and if you just kind of scan verses 3 through 10, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, these eight declarations of blessings. And when you look at those blessings, you start reading what those blessings really are, what what those, those factors for happiness really are, what it is that makes life enviable to others. That's what the word really means, blessed are you start to see a trend that that this is really not the value of the things of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, right? Verse 4, blessed are those who who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is not warrior language. This is not overcoming being a victor over the foreign rule. But what Jesus is declaring here is what really matters to God. He's declaring a completely different set of values. He's turning things upside down. And we're going to find, what we're going to zero in on today is just verses 3 through 6. The first four of these blessings, alright? We're going to find in these four beatitudes, as they're commonly called, a common thread. And that common thread is simply this. They are four conditions of lack. There are four conditions of, what did I say? Lack, of missing something. The first four blessings identify four conditions of lack. And what we're going to find is this truth, that the life that is led by God finds a blessing in having nothing. 
I don't know, maybe when you feel like you've got nothing, you don't really feel blessed in those moments. But we're going to find that when we're led by God, we actually see a blessing in having nothing. So let's dive in. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in what? In spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, you're thinking about, oh man, kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do I get there? What do I do? How, how great can I be in order to be in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, first, you're blessed when you're poor in spirit. <laughs> blessed are the poor in spirit. Interesting, the Greek word here for poor, it's actually a posture. It, it describes a posture of being crouched or cowered over like a beggar. It's talking about being bent over. You know that kind of destitution that literally doubles someone over because they completely lack everything that they need. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. But to be poor, to be destitute, not just in material things, but as it says, where is it? Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're not just having, it's not just talking about having an empty checking account. It's having an empty heart being poor in spirit. It's, it's lacking spiritual riches, being spiritually bankrupt, having our hearts emptied out. I don't know, has this ever happened to you where you've realized that you are not hot stuff after all? <laughs> has that ever... Maybe your bubble hasn't been burst yet. But truly, let me, I'll just tell it. You're not. You're not. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anyways, you're, you're not hot stuff after all. That before God, when you stand before a holy God, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we, or a couple of months ago, we looked at this passage in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah sees this vision of God, and the very first thing he says is, Oh man, I am messed up. Right? Uh, as, the, as the New King James says, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. Why? Because in God's presence, you realize, Man, I got nothing. I got nothing. I, I think about a story that Jesus told about a tax collector and a Pharisee. It's, it's found in Luke chapter 8. They, they went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee is praying about himself. He's saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. He says all these things to compare himself to others and kind of lift himself up. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like that. I do this, I do that. And then there's this tax collector over here, and he can't even look up to heaven. He's just beating his heart like, ah, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When you look at those two scenarios, who is poor in spirit? Yeah, the tax collector in that situation just can't even, oh man, I got nothing. I am not hot stuff, right? Woe is me, I am undone. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 is, that's a blessing. That's an enviable position to be in. If you've ever been in that situation, you feel horrible about yourself. You feel embarrassed, ashamed. You feel like, you're not worth the time that God wants to give you. And yet Jesus is declaring the very first thing out of his mouth. That's a blessing. That's an enviable position to be in. Why? Because when you feel like you've got nothing of yourself to depend on, then you're a prime candidate for the grace of Jesus. <laughs> when you feel like you've got nothing in your own heart to offer to God, when you feel like you have nothing in your possession, you are actually in possession of the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says, for theirs is, not will be, but for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the blessing in having nothing, right? <laughs> Poor in spirit, they've got nothing. That, that's a blessing. 
It's a blessing to have nothing before God. Why? Because then God can be everything to us. Then God can be everything to us. All right, beatitude number two. Let's go. Matthew chapter five, verse four. It says, blessed are those who do what? Who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. I'm going to try to keep track of my slides here. Here's it. Okay, sorry about that. Poor in spirit, the blessing of lacking spiritual riches. That's what we're lacking here. When we have no spiritual riches, that's actually a blessing. But here's the second one. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Have you ever been in in an experience or a season of mourning? Mourning. It means to lament, to feel great grief over, to feel guilt over even. Maybe it's the, the grieving that you experience over the death of a loved one or the loss of a personal hope or ambition, the loss of possibilities, the loss of things happening. It's that kind of grief that is so severe that it actually takes possession of a person and it cannot be hid. That kind of mourning that actually like, you, you can't really hide from other people. And what's powerful about this assurance is it says that blessed are those who mourn for they what? What does your Bible say? For they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. This is very interesting. It's not that they're going to comfort themselves, but that they will be comforted. Do you see the difference there? They're not going to find comfort. They're going to be comforted. Question, who is the one that's doing the comforting? Yeah, God himself. This is actually a grammatical nuance in Scripture that a lot of times they, um, they would use this passive tense of, the, of a verb in order to express that God is the one who's doing it. So they shall be comforted. They shall be loved. They shall be taken care of. That's, that's talking about God being the provider of that comfort, of that love, and of that care. It's called the divine passive. And so here, it's God who is assuring them, I am going to comfort you. And there's a deeper sense of mourning when we talk about not just mourning circumstances happening, not just mourning tragedies happening, but when we actually mourn over ourselves. Um, not, not to become like uh, self-focused or whatever, but what we're talking about is a certain spiritual poverty, like in, in you know, verse 3, you know, you're, you're poor in spirit. When you feel like you have nothing before God, you begin to mourn over the things that put God on the cross. And so it's, called, it's, it's really a heart sorrow for sin. In fact, um, you, you get this idea in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's, a, it's kind of prophesying about a time when, you know, on the other side of eternity, we're going to meet Jesus face to face. And Jesus himself, though we are going to have glorified and changed bodies in heaven, Jesus himself will still have scars. Did you know that? This is, this is the reference in Zechariah 12, verse 10. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. It's talking about an experience of actually looking upon what, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and as a result of seeing Jesus pierced, as a result of seeing Jesus crucified, we actually ourselves begin to mourn over the cause of that, which is us. That, that, that was my action. That was my choice. That was my rebellion. It's not just mourning over the consequences of sin. Not just mourning over the fact that we've got caught in sin. But it's actually mourning when we look at the cross. The true disciple weeps over the things that put Christ on the cross. The mourning and sorrow for sin. 
is not just uh, over the sin in our own lives, but I don't know if you've ever been in that state where you're actually mourning sin that you see around you. The sin that you see others, loved ones, close ones, that they are just kind of bound by and held by. And I think uh, Ezekiel captures this. I don't know if I put this on the screen. Yeah, Ezekiel 9 verse 4. Um, God is telling uh, this this, uh, envision. He's saying, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who, what are those three words there? Who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within. Uh, If you know that vision, in Ezekiel chapter 9, God is trying to mark out the people that really have a heart for him. And one of those indicators of people who truly follow God is that they sigh and cry not just over their own sin, but they sigh and cry over the sin they see around them. Like, oh Lord, this isn't how it ought to be, you know? And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where, uh, where, where you really see sin's curse in the lives of those around you. When you mourn over life's tragedies, yes, you mourn over the broken relationships of lost loved ones, of abuses, etc. But we're grieving not just the circumstances, but the very cause of those circumstances which is sin itself. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? What's crazy is that a lot of times, and I'll admit, I'm the first to admit, that I become desensitized to sin and its curse. That it has become kind of normal, you know? We see it on the news like every night, every hour it seems like. And, And I cease to not sigh and cry over it, but media will actually encourage us to, to be entertained by it. Ooh. You follow what I'm saying? Oh, that's crazy. But God is leading us to be sensitized to the sinfulness of sin. And so when we lack, you know, when, when, when it says, blessed are those who mourn, what kind of lack is this? When we mourn over sin, whether in ourselves or around us, it's because sin has lost its savor. We lack a relish for sin. Do you understand what I mean by that? We lack a relish for sin. Those who are led by God are sensitized to the sinful, sinfulness of sin, and they mourn over it rather than exult in it. The blessing of lacking a relish for sin. When we're in that mode, now we're more akin, more aligned with the heart of God. Wow, that's something I think we all need to pray for. Uh, this, this world, I, I tell you, the, the, just the influence of mass media and, and the kinds of things that are out there, it, else, man, we need to learn to mourn over sin. I think, uh, you know, I've, I just feel, feel pricked in my heart every time that I get a laugh out of sin. No, 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 no. It's not something to be thrilled by. It's not something to be excited by. It's something to mourn over, to sigh and cry over. And that's something that God needs to bring into our hearts. That's a blessing, he says. When you mourn like that, you will be comforted by God himself. All right, blessing number three. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It says, blessed are the who? The meek. Blessed are the meek. When you think of meek, what what other words come to your mind? Humble, okay. Weak, yeah, me too. Like doormat, right? (laughs) Um, Sometimes meek kind of takes like a negative connotation. Even humble takes a a negative connotation, especially in the values of our world and stuff. And and here, really, that's what it's meant. Uh, it's, It's talking about something that's someone that's humble, someone that's gentle, Someone that's, and maybe this is another word, unassuming. Unassuming. You kind of think, you know, I've been kind of following the NBA finals. I don't know how many of you guys do that. But uh, 
you, you get this sense that, man, uh, LeBron James, he's passing too much. He just needs to go to the rim, you know? <laughs> just take it hard to the rim or whatever. And that's a value that, that or, or it speaks to a value of like, hey, you just need to take over. You know, the superstars take over. But here Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You're blessed when you're meek. When you're actually unassuming, when you're humble, when you're gentle. And this isn't talking about a complete doormat kind of passivity. But choosing, I'll say this carefully, but choosing not to use your strength for your own ends. Does that make sense? That's the kind of meekness that Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus was the most powerful being in the universe. And yet he was the most meek. He had all the strength in the cosmos. And yet he never used his strength for himself. That, I believe, is what true meekness is. When, when, when we come into that point where, where we, we are um, able to be strong and yet not use our strength for ourselves, where does that meekness come from? I think it comes from a result of the other two blessings. Being poor in spirit, realizing you have nothing before God. Mourning over sin and realizing that sin is really rebellion against God and reliance upon yourself. You mourn over that. Then you can truly be meek. It's the result of being poor in spirit and mourning over sin's sinfulness and life's tragedies. It's a stance of, of humility that is not willing to strive for or reach for things for yourself. And, and instead, this kind of person, a meek person, is willing to let God bring those things to him. Do you follow that? A meek person is not just using their own strength in order to obtain their needs. A meek person is willing to let God's strength be demonstrated to meet their needs. And so the, this lack, when, uh, when we're talking about four conditions of lack, where the poor in spirit, they lack spiritual riches. The meek, they lack a relish for sin. The, the, I'm sorry, the, those who mourn lack a relish for sin. And those who are meek, they lack a selfish ambition. When you're meek, when you're humble and unassuming, the true disciple, someone who is led by God, takes an unassuming stance. Um, as we sing in that song, uh, quietness and trust, right? A, a quiet trust and confidence in God that looks to Him to be the one to secure our needs. Do you resonate with that at all? Have there been seasons in your life where you've experienced that? Or maybe on the flip side, there are seasons in your life where you haven't experienced that. Where you've, oh God, when are you going to bring it? Okay, I'll just take care of it. You know, I mean, we have we have Bible characters who do that all the time. Like Abraham, for example, was given this amazing promise that through him salvation would come to all the world. He's ninety plus years old, and he's thinking, how am I going to have a child? You know, and then he takes matters into his own hands. That's what you would call not being meek, right? Taking matters into your own hands, but instead letting God be the one to secure your needs. So it's lacking that that selfish ambition. All right, beatitude number four. Beatitude number four, here it is in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Do you feel blessed when you're hungry? <laughs> Do you feel blessed when you're thirsty? Here, let's, let's finish the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. And the promise? For they shall be filled. Again, there's that be filled. They're, they're not filling themselves with righteousness. It's a divine passive there again. God is the one who supplies their righteousness. So what does it mean to be hungry and thirsty? I think we all know what it feels like. Right? I think we all know what it means. It means to, be, to crave something, to desire something earnestly because you're lacking it in your life. It's a feeling of want or lack. And in this case, it's a lack for what? Their hunger and 
they're hungry and thirsty for, for righteousness. They lack righteousness. And what's interesting is that those words, hunger and thirst, it's a, it's a particular, it's a continuous form. They're constantly hungry. They're constantly thirsty for righteousness. And Jesus says, that's a blessing. Why? Why is it a blessing when I lack righteousness? Because when we lack our righteousness, we're ready to let God supply us His righteousness. The promise when we feel this lack is that we'll be satisfied, that we'll be fed, almost fattened and gorged with God's righteousness. And again, some may wonder, what's the blessing in having nothing? So we've looked at these things, the blessing of, of uh, lacking uh, spiritual riches, the blessing of lacking a relish for sin, the blessing of, of lacking selfish ambition, and finally, the blessing of lacking our own righteousness. Man, when we ha- don't have these things, sometimes we stress out, sometimes we feel guilty, sometimes we feel far from God. But God says, no, wait, 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 wait. Those conditions are all enviable. Those conditions are all under the benediction of Jesus Christ himself. So what is the blessing of having nothing? Honestly, it seems like a pretty depressing state of heart, right? When you've got nothing. Um, but, but these blessings, you know, you see them in the disciples' experience. Like when Jesus, um, maybe you remember in Luke chapter 5, Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee and there's Peter. And, and it says that they're washing their nets after a long night. And in Luke chapter 5, did I put this up here? Luke chapter, no, I didn't. Luke chapter 5, verse 5, uh, Jesus actually says, hey, let's go launch out into the deep. And, and uh, Peter says, well, we've toiled all night. We haven't even gotten anything. Again, they, they have nothing. But apparently that was a blessing because in that moment, Jesus was able to fill their nets and then call them to follow him. And you see Peter's response there. You, you can look at it later this afternoon, Luke chapter 5. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Again, that whole Isaiah experience. He sees God and and what he's able to do, and he realizes he's got nothing before God. And yet that made him a prime candidate to follow God. See, when we have nothing, it's a blessing because it's actually possible to follow Jesus. Uh, We we actually see this again in um, John chapter 6. Peter and the disciples, they... They see Jesus teaching these multitudes, and he, he says some things that are kind of hard to swallow. And it says in John 6, verse 66, very interesting, 6, verse 66, that the, a ton of people leave from following Jesus. And then Jesus turns to his, to his other disciples, you know, the, the faithful 12. And he says, do you guys want to leave too? And in John 6, verse 67 and 68, Peter says, you know what? You have the words of eternal life. To whom else could we go? In other words, their options had run out. They had nothing else but Jesus. That, that's the blessing of having nothing. Where Jesus is the only option. That's why Jesus is starting out his kingdom by saying, hey, you're blessed when you've got nothing. You're blessed when you've got nothing. And if, uh, if, again, if you just want to understand the significance of this even more, at the end of time, In Revelation chapter 3. Actually, go with me there. So we're in Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 3. There's actually a picture of a people who don't feel like they have any need at all. In Revelation chapter 3. And we'll read it in verse, I think it's 16 and 17. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right. 
All right, so Jesus is talking to this church, and this church happens to be situated in a city called Laodicea. Have you heard of that before? Laodicea. And, and really, if you understand these, uh, these messages to these particular congregations and stuff, the, each congregation depicts an era in Christian history. And this is the last of the churches mentioned, which means this is the last of the Christian church. And uh, Jesus is speaking straight to them. He says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not even know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire. Okay, we actually do this have, have this one here. You say, hey, they're, they're saying about themselves, I've got it all. I have no need. <laughs> But because they're saying that Jesus is counseling them to buy from me. Hey, trade all your stuff that you think you actually have. Trade that with the stuff that I have to offer. The only problem is that when we think we've got it all, we have no need to go to to the store. When we think our pockets are full, we have no need to go to the heavenly salesman, so to speak. Buy from me, he says. Buy from me. And so what's the blessing of having nothing? Well, Laodicea is showing us the curse in having everything. (laughs) The curse in having everything is that when we feel like we are satisfied, we're going to keep Jesus at an arm's length. We're going to keep him at a distance. As long as we don't sense our need, we won't come to Jesus. It's impossible to truly follow him in that state. It's impossible to truly be led by him when we feel like we've got it all. And so, again, the, bless, the life that is led by God, it finds a blessing in having nothing. I want to give you an opportunity. Um, I'm going to invite my wife to come. She's going to sing a song for us that, that has a lot of meaning for me personally. It's called, I Have Nothing. And as you have heard these blessings, uh, as she's singing this song, maybe just kind of reflect back to Matthew 3 through 6. And look at those blessings, those enviable positions Find one that you resonate and maybe find one that you resonate with and maybe maybe ask Jesus which one of those conditions you don't resonate with and that you want God to cultivate in your heart. What condition of lack he needs to create in your life, you know, that lack of spiritual riches, that lack of a relish for sin, that lack of a selfish ambition, or maybe that lack of your own righteousness. Maybe you think you've got it all. And so as she's singing this song, Uh, Just reflect on the blessing of having nothing. There's a blessing in having nothing. And um, um, I'm going to make three simple appeals today. One is a a daring appeal. (laughs) Simple this, simply this, that as you've looked at these blessings of having nothing, um, maybe you realize that there are certain things there, certain lacks that you don't lack. There are certain things there, um, spiritual riches, that you actually feel very full about. There's a a relish for sin that you feel like you have an abundance of. There's a selfish ambition that that you're not willing to let go of. Or there's a, a sense of your own righteousness that you don't really see a need for anything else. And so this is the first appeal. It's a daring prayer to pray. That if, if that if that's you, if you resonate with not really feeling a lack in a certain area... I want to appeal to you to pray a prayer. God, help me sense my need. 
And the reason why I say that that's a dangerous prayer is because he will. <laughs> He'll help you sense your need. He'll bring you to your knees, your heart to your knees, so to speak. And there may be a sense of brokenness that comes to the, the foreground as a result of that. But Jesus says it in Matthew 21. He says, those who are broken on me, are, are, you know, they'll, they'll be put back together. But those who, who aren't, they'll be crushed. And so appeal number one. Are you willing to pray that prayer? God, help me sense my need. And just by a show of hands, is, is that something that you're willing to do? God, help me sense my need. Amen. Amen. Appeal number two. Appeal number two. Maybe you feel very deeply those sen- that sense of need in a certain area. And I just want to appeal to you to choose hope. Choose hope. Choose to believe that God can give you the kingdom. That God will comfort you. That God will uh, will we'll bring about that satisfaction for righteousness that you're looking for. That second appeal is when you feel crushed by the weight of your spiritual poverty, when you feel like you're grieving because of the grip of sin and its curse upon your heart, you're helpless to generate your own righteousness in your life. If you feel that need, choose, that, choose hope and say, okay, that, that, that is a blessed position to be in. Choose to see that you're actually a prime candidate when you're there in that depth in that dark valley, in the pit of just your own shame and and guilt. Choose in that moment, take courage and cling to Jesus even more and make your boast in in the things that you lack, not the things that you have. Make your boast, as Paul said, that in my weakness, God's strength can be made perfect. Is that something you're willing to do? Just by a show of hands, is that something you're willing to say, yes, in those moments of need, I'll, I'll choose hope. I'll choose hope. Amen. Lastly, a very specific appeal. And that's simply this. That if you have nothing, and you want Jesus to be everything, that you would actually demonstrate that desire, that commitment, in the simple act that Jesus gave us, and that's the act of baptism. If you're saying, man, yeah, I I realize I have nothing, but when I do have nothing, that means Jesus can be everything. Maybe you've been baptized before. Maybe you've thought about baptism and you just thought, ah, you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. But really, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward surrender. It's a surrender of our sin and failure that only Jesus can forgive. It's a surrender of our hopes and desires to live righteously that only Jesus can empower us to live righteously. There's no better way to confess that I have nothing and Jesus is everything than through the waters of baptism. It's, It's a burial of the old. the the old you that has nothing and it's a resurrection to a new you that has Jesus as everything maybe that's something that you need to pray about maybe it's something you you want to talk to me about and say what are the full implications of that it's not like we're going to go this afternoon at the park and and, and find some water to douse you no 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 that's not what we're going to do But, but if that's a desire for you you say man I want to confess that I have nothing and Jesus is everything through baptism if that's a desire for you I want to help you prepare for that we can set a date for that Um, If you have your Connect card, you can just indicate that on your Connect card or just talk to me afterwards. But uh, right now, if that's something that your heart is sensing, man, the Holy Spirit wants me to do that, eventually, sometime, just raise your hand to heaven right now and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you specifically. If that's a desire for you, you want to be baptized, say, I have nothing, but Jesus is everything.
maybe there are others, you know, you've been baptized before and you really didn't confess that in that baptism, it wasn't a time in your, in your life where, where you were saying that Jesus is everything. You were just kind of doing it for other motives or other reasons. But if that's you, man, there's, there's no reason to, to not be baptized. There's no better way to say, I have nothing and Jesus is everything. Anybody else want to raise their hand to heaven and say, yeah, I want to prepare for that too. bow our heads together. I want to pray specifically for for those decisions too. Father in heaven, I thank you that when we have nothing and we know that and we can accept that, it makes us a prime candidate to let you be everything. And Father, I just want to be the first to say sorry for letting ourselves be everything letting our own uh, priorities, letting our own um, convenience, letting our own habits, letting our own past, letting our own pride be everything to us and not letting you be the one that only you can be in our lives. And that's our Savior, that's our King, that's our Lord. Lord, in these simple lines, you've declared these enviable conditions and sometimes we've kind of shied away from those conditions. We've tried to do everything in our lives to avoid from experiencing those conditions. But God, I pray that you would bring us to a sense of need where we've got nothing before you. Lord, for those of us who are in that season where we're uh, almost discouraged by our sense of need, I pray that you would give us the ability to choose hope today. That you would give us the courage to cling to Jesus as our all in all so that you can make your strength perfect in our weakness. Lord, I want to pray specifically for my friends who raised their hand to heaven and said, yes, that is a desire of mine to confess that I have nothing and Jesus is everything. Lord, please, may your hand of blessing be upon both Justin and Sally as they've just decided this and said, yes, I want to make that confession, Father. Help us to find a a right time for that. Help us to find the appropriate setting for that. And may we as a family just cheer them on in that. Thank you, God, that when we cheer them up, man, our cheers are not as loud as the angels of heaven who are rejoicing over that decision. Lord, we know that the enemy would love to to discourage that decision, even take it back and cause them to doubt that. But Lord, we pray a hedge of protection would be around their hearts. Lord, please secure that, that commitment and help us to know how we can walk with them in preparation for that. Thank you, Lord, that when we have nothing... You are everything. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen and Amen.